Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and these are the days of the underground. Never out of fashion, but never in fashion. Pagan, piratical pre-punks in technical, crusty, leery, hairy, space-rocking glory. Perhaps patronisingly dismissed by those who've put them in a box with white people with dreadlocks who don't change their underwear very often and live in converted Bedford vans. But people who now grudgingly respect them, and rightfully so. They were formed in 1969, and they are still going. Not many bands can say that right. And for all that time, they've been fiercely independent. A revolutionary, revolving whirligig, with a bewildering cast list of members, denizens of the West London underground. They are the band Portwind. About whom a beautiful new book has been published by Strange Attractor Press, in various technical editions, it's called Hawkwind Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia. And this is what it says. Avatars of the Underground, figureheads of the free festival scene and heralds of punk, Hawkwind were one of the bands that defined the 1970s. At the height of their artistic and commercial powers, Hawkwind channeled and amplified the era's psychic tenor via a science fiction sensibility, mind-blowing visuals, and their unique brand of deep space psychedelia. Well, I'm very pleased that we've got the author of that wonderful volume with us today, the journalist Joe Banks. Hello, Joe. Hi there. Joe, first of all, congratulations on this book. It's beautiful. Um, But before we dig into the book and into Hawkwind, and in fact into that West London scene which they emerged from and were so important in the formation of what about you? How did you come to write this book? And well, how did you come to Hawkwind? <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's, it's a classic case of having an older brother who, who would play kind of music when I was younger. And he would play, you know, all of the kind of classic rock stuff, you know, Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and Queen and people like that. But he had a copy of Warrior on the Edge of Time, which is Hawkwind's 1975 album, one of their kind of best efforts. And that to me, when he was playing that, this this sounded like something completely other from the other kind of rock music he was playing. It's the sound was so kind of dense and involving. There's the whole fold out sleeve. There's these spoken word pieces, which you know, to a nine or ten year old, were actually incredibly kind of sinister. So that's where the obsession with Hawkwind started. But the reason really for writing the book, I mean, Hawkwind have had a couple of quite decent biographies written about them already. So if you want to read the story of Hawkwind, it's out there. But the thing I thought was missing was more of a um, a cultural take, if you like, on uh, Hawkwind's importance to the 1970s. Because it seems the thing that's really overlooked is 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 quite the impact that they they had on both kind of music, but the, the kind of music scene in the 1970s. Um, you know, we very much think of the 1970s now that it was you know, the aforementioned kind of classic rock bands and and prog rock, and then around the mid-70s, punk came along and changed everything. But there's this alternative narrative uh, which is kind of running throughout the 1970s, um, which I I guess, you know, the the title Days of the Underground, it's a Hawkwind song, but it also is referring to this alternative narrative, this underground that was happening throughout Britain, which tends to be under-acknowledged now, and also... What tends to be under-acknowledged is Hawkwind's absolute key role in this. I mean, they were the real figureheads 
of, of, of the days of the underground. And that was the thing I really wanted to, to address in this book and kind of make some connections and draw out uh, all of the kind of different angles on Hawkwind that I think generally these days seems to be completely lacking. I mean, if, if Hawkwind are talked about at all these days, it tends to be, you know, as, as uh, you know, as the, the kind of the people who created Space Rock, but also as this kind of lysergic soap opera, if you like, you know, because there's been a huge amount of comings and goings from Hawkwind. But I, I think that is, is, is kind of missing the point of quite how important Hawkwind were. Uh, I mean, and for me, they are just simply one of the most important bands that Britain's ever ever produced. Right. We don't normally cover individual bands on this programme, but one of the fascinating things about Hawkwind is that they came from this culture that you, just, you talk about, this West London underground culture. And it's quite specific geographically in terms of the counterculture in London. You know, you had the sort of Chelsea set um, in the 60s, which, you know, is maybe much more kind of posh and sort of celebrity and swinging 60s until uh, mid-70s when it became more punk. And then in sort of Soho, where we are, it was more shiny, more film, more fashion, possibly. But in West London, it was more kind of down and dirty, also more political... Um, much more experimental somehow and they were very much you know part of that and promoted it right I think so I mean the point I make is that Hawkwind you know from the early 70s onwards become a real rallying point for for the the alternative to the alternative if you like I mean if if, if you're not interested in in progressive rock or you know kind of the Rolling Stones or Deep Purple or whatever in the 1970s you know but you're into rock music there's there's not much of an alternative out there you know other than Hawkwind I mean we we look now for instance at the the, the German bands the so-called kraut rock bands who were in a similar area, but there's quite a lot of them. There's an entire kind of scene in Germany. Whereas if you look at kind of Britain in, in those days, there's, there's practically there's practically nothing there's, as an alternative. And Hawkwind really were that alternative. And as you said, they've they've continued to be that rallying point. It's really interesting to see how you know um, there's obviously the free festival scene which develops in the 80s, and then that kind of um, segues um, seamlessly into the the kind of uh, a rave scene, kind of outdoor raves, and they Hawkwind were there the whole time as this as this kind of alternative rallying point for people who wanted something other than you know kind of what the mainstream was giving them. Terrific. So let's go back in time to sort of late sixties, that part of London. Labrook Grove, Portobello Road, W10, W11, now one of the most expensive parts of town. But what was this kind of milieu that they emerged from and participated in? Okay, so, I mean, Labrook Grove, um, I mean, is now, you know, Notting Hill. Labrook Grove is, is, is almost like a byword for gentrification now. But in the 60s, um, well, 50s and 60s, I mean, Labrook Grove was probably little better than a, a slum as far as a lot of people were concerned. Uh, and it's obviously where, you know, uh, when the Windrush generation come over, that's where they're basically shunted to. So it's kind of poor housing, you know, slum housing. Um, but it's also very cheap housing, which means that, you know, for people, um, students particularly, for instance, who are wanting to kind of, you know, um, live somewhere cheaply but near to central London, you know, St Martin's College, those people. So you get a lot of kind of quite arty types moving into the area for, for cheap housing. And then when... You know the, the the counterculture, if you like, starts to emerge um, with with figures such as uh, John Hopkins. Um, for instance, the uh, the London Free School is established in Labrook Grove, 
Um, and there's also other kind of magazines start to emerge there, uh, things like Friends. And just generally, it, it, it becomes a kind of real melting pot for, for kind of counterculture in in London, you know, the, the part that's not to do with, you know, Carnaby Street or, you know, kind of King's Road in Chelsea. This is actually to do with where the people were living and actually kind of making the culture and making the music. Um, for instance, you have things like the All Saints Church Hall in Labrook Grove, which is like a very important venue for Pink Floyd when they're, you know, getting it together. And there's numerous kind of benefits kind of happen there. And eventually that is the place where Hawkwind make their very first appearance. Um, now, there's a mythic aspect to this, um, that Hawkwind supposedly gatecrash this gig that was already happening in August 1969 and basically turn up and say, can we play? And there's various different versions about whether this is actually the case or whether they played before. But this seems to be, you know, the, the this is the foundation stone of their creation story, if you like. Turning up, um, you know, and the bands that were playing that night... Um, High Tide and Skin Alley, again, kind of local bands who were, you know, making a bit of a noise and getting a name for themselves at the time. They weren't, you know, they weren't pop groups. They were pretty avant-garde themselves. But Hawkwind really, really kind of stood out by, you know, kind of getting on stage, 15 minutes of kind of really improvised kind of noise, supposedly based around kind of eight miles high. But, you know, who knows? It's slightly lost in the in the kind of annals of time. Um, but it's one of those those kind of instances where everything seems to come together at the right time. So that night, John Peel is in the audience and he says to um, Doug Smith of Clearwater Promotions, who are the company putting on this gig, he's saying, you know, this band are interesting. You, you should think about getting involved. And sure enough, Doug Smith um, eventually does kind of get in touch with them. And from there, the whole thing kind of sets off with, you know, Clearwater being one of the, the most important kind of promoters at the time in that area, starting to get them gigs. And then, you know, Hawkwind start to kind of roll from there. Um, I mean, that, that whole thing really was was not to be like a standard band. They weren't interested in the Star Trip. They were just about making music and, and making a new kind of noise. And the fact that they would then pretty much play wherever you wanted them to, you know, whether it would be paid gigs or whether it be benefit gigs or even just kind of playing under the, the concrete arches of the Westway, um, they, they very, very quickly become, you know, pr pretty much the underground's most prominent band. Yes. You know, we had Nick Laird Clues, uh, later of the Dream Academy, on the programme, did a couple of shows with Nick actually, he gave this wonderful evocation of West London. I mean, he was born there, he grew up there, he still lives there. And he gave us this kind of child's, teens, young man's, musician's perspective of this countercultural evolution that was happening around him at that time in West London. And as you say, it was an incredibly fertile mixing pot of cultures, the Windrush generation, the Afro-Caribbeans, the Portuguese community, Irish community as well, I think. Um, this fading, crumbling grandeur mixed in with all these uh, you know, new generations of people coming to live there. And so let's, let's dig in a bit. How did Hawkwind begin? I'm assuming that even then, the genesis, the genesis of the band was the main man, Dave Brock, who's still the captain of the good ship Hawkwind. Uh, so tell us about that, Joe. How did Hawkwind emerge in that fertile compost of counterculture that was West London? It was Dave Brock, right, that got it going. That's right. So, I mean, Hawkwind kind of officially come into being in 1969, but Dave Brock has been on the scene, if you like, for a number of years before that. Um, I mean, not least in, in as much as he was pretty much making pretty good money as a busker 
um, you know, around Labyrinth Grove, but also, you know, in the West End and cinema queues. I mean, it is interesting the way that kind of Hawkwind do very quickly come into being. I mean, at the start of 1969, Dave Brock is, um, he's he's a part of, uh, he, he, he plays a show at the Royal Albert Hall as part of, um, the, uh, the the buskers show. So there was for a very short period of time around a, a guy called Don Partridge who had had a couple of hits and was essentially a busker. He put together this show at the Royal Albert Hall, pulling in kind of other buskers and itinerant musicians. Dave Brock kind of plays that, and then I think in May of 1969 he's he's on a on a double decker bus touring the country as a busker still. But in parallel with this, he's trying to get a a new type of band together as well. Uh, I mean, he's he's played in bands previously, uh, probably most prominently a, a group called The Famous Cure, who were kind of had a reasonable noise in places like the Netherlands for a while. But he, he wants to do something new. He's kind of experimenting with tape loops. And so at the same time that he's, he's this kind of busker guy, he's also kind of putting this new band together. And as I say, I mean, really, they only start you know, rehearsing probably from kind of summer 69. And then this opportunity comes up in, in August to play this gig at the Old Saints Hall. And really it, it, it goes from there. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Dave Brock is, is um, there's been a number of very strong personalities in the band throughout the years, but Dave Brock is still very much the captain of the ship. And even in those early days when it was much more of a communal band, you got the impression that he was the guy who was basically pushing everything along and he was certainly the guy who was writing most of the music so he's remained you know at times the singer but always a guitar player i mean in some some ways seems very modest you know he's quite happy for other people to take the lead during times but at the same time obviously a sort of benevolent dictator because he always keeps hold of the reins right to this day and were they uh one of those bands who were kind of living together working together you know was it a kind of commune type based outfit I think I think some of the guys at various times were were certainly living in the same house, but I mean I think that's also a point about Labrador Grove is that they were they were faces on the scene, if you like. I mean when Dave Brock wasn't busking around Labrador Grove, I think he occasionally kind of worked as a as like an electrician there. Um, Nick Turner, of course, who was also one of the big figures in Hawkwind, um, had a had a van, so he was basically a delivery driver for a lot of the head shops and would be moving you know kind of equipment around for other groups. Robert Calvert, uh, who had originally started off in Margate, came and started basically living with Nick Turner in Labrador Grove, and he would be a regular feature on all of the cafes and started working for um, Friends magazine that I mentioned before, kind of submitting poetry and stories for them. Um, and yeah, and, and then other members of the band as well would be kind of living you know, kind of variously in houses of each other. It, it wasn't like an Amondeul thing where they were literally living in a commune. I don't think they, they all ever lived in one place together. But, uh, but on saying that, the amount of time they spent on the road in the back of the van, they might as well have been. Let's listen to some Hawkwind then from the early days.
It's rather lovely, isn't it? It's pretty, it's sort of bucolic, almost quite catchy, uh, melodic, lots of, quite a few chords in there. It's not really a harbinger of what was to come in terms of what, certainly I associate with Hawkwind of their main part of their career, right? I mean, the reason I chose that track was just to illustrate that, you know, that Dave Brock was coming, you know, from a position of being a busker. And this is basically one of his kind of busking tunes. Um, but it also, in those early days, was a kind of getting to know you track for Hawkwind. I mean, at the, you know, even, as I said, from the very start, Hawkwind were kind of playing this kind of really quite um, out there kind of acid rock music. But uh, they were canny enough to know that if they just kind of did a demo of 15 minutes of that, then they probably weren't going to get a foot in the door. So a, a track like Hurry on Sundown was a, a way for them to say that, you know, look, guys, we, we kind of can write songs as well. Um, but I think it's it's also interesting uh, uh, in the lyrics of Hurry on Sundown that you you get the sense of it's a rallying cry for the, the counterculture, that line there, there's hundreds of people like you and me. And I think that was kind of, you know, why it's an important track as well. It's, it's, it is really aligning Hawkwind with that counterculture. You know, that's where they belong. It's great to think about that, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by this idea that, you know, there was a communal community sense of being part of a counterculture, which is maybe even international, not just local. Uh, Nick Laird, Clues, again, you know, he talked about that as many of our guests have, you know, that it was, it felt like an actual something going on, you know, which you could participate in. I guess if you're involved in Extinction Rebellion or even, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, then you maybe also have that experience now. And there's always a counterculture. There's always an underground. It's happening in London now, somewhere I'm sure, you know, maybe southeast, maybe halfway up a tower block with a different kind of uh, group of young people. Uh, but Holtman were very much part of it, participant, participants in it. They were soundtracking it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the alternative society, such as such as it was in, in those days, as I said, had gathered around Labrick Grove. But I think this is the real point that one of the points I'm trying to make in the book is that uh, you know, a lot of people, when they look back at this time, they say, well, you know, it's all over by the end of the 60s. You know, people like to say, you know, it goes from Woodstock to Altamont in the, in the space of a of a few months. And somehow the town cultural project has failed. And that's the end of it. And that's frankly complete garbage, because it's only really then that it starts to get going as a as a kind of mass movement, if you like, or if not a mass movement, it's something that starts to permeate the culture, you know, really from the end of the 60s through pretty much the first half of the 70s, you know, and not just in Labrook Grove. It starts to spread out, you know, around the rest of the country. And Hawkwind are absolutely, you know, an integral part of the spread of this counterculture because they are the band who are going out there playing literally everywhere and not just once, you know, returning to venues as well. They're the real heralds of the underground, you know, not just with their music and their show, but, you know, they're going out there. Um, they were selling, you know, copies of alternative magazines that you couldn't get anywhere else. Uh, there was obviously kind of, they were kind of bringing the, the drug culture with them as well, which is obviously an important part of the the underground at the time. So for me, you know, the days of the underground, you know, really is certainly the first half of the 70s. You know, that's that's when it, it becomes a thing, you know, and not not just through Hawkwind, but if you look at, you know, kind of, you know, just the music of the time, you know, this is when all of the, the great kind of underground rock sounds, you know, kind of start to emerge. So, you know, it, it, there's a slight kind of 
kind of 60s hipsterism about it, where it's saying, oh man, it was kind of all over by the end of the 60s. But it's not the case at all. I mean, the other big case in point, of course, is the, the Isle of Wight Festival of 1970, where Hawkwind famously play outside of the uh, of the fence pretty much non-stop for about five days. And that's this mass coming together of people, like a quarter of a million people, most of whom didn't have tickets. And this is then going kind to of reflected again for the next few years, the whole free festival or, or, or just festival scene in general that kind of grows up is a kind of model of an alternate way of life. And I mean, the point I make in the book is that it, it doesn't matter that these people didn't then all hit the hippie trail to India. The fact is, is that they had internalised the, the fact that there was a different way of being or a different way of thinking, you know, out there. There were other options available to what mainstream culture was offering. And, and as I say, I think Hawkwind are absolutely at the centre of all of that. Yeah, there is this sort of idea that it ended at the end of the 60s. And of course it didn't. I mean, the, in With Neil and I, Danny the Drug Dealer is that very famous quote. And he says, if you're hanging, on to, you're hanging on to a rising balloon, you're presented with a difficult decision. Let go before it's too late or hang on and keep getting higher. Posing the question... How long can you keep a grip on the rope? They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And in a way, he was kind of right. And in a way, he was wrong because it was just getting going. In fact, maybe the important stuff got done in the 70s, didn't it? Certainly politically, you think about women's lib and gay, gay rights, uh, ecological stuff, green stuff. And, uh, you know, things like the free school in West London, Frestonia, the independent state of Frestonia, Heathcote Williams, all those political agitators of West London, they were just really gearing up, weren't they? And it got darker and dirtier, more street. It was tough times in Britain, of course, economically. Um, but in fact, the counterculture itself was, was deepening rather than disappearing. That's right. I mean, this is all of the stuff that had been talked about at the end of the 60s, but it only really started mobilising, you know, things like you know, the women's lib movement, gay liberation, and uh, and as you say, kind of people like the Angry Brigade as well, you know, you start to see kind of terrorist organisations emerging and, you know, and, and it's 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 all the kind of revolutionary stuff that's talked about in the 60s actually starting to to happen. And uh, which is why it always kind of seems strange to me that that somehow, you know, the counterculture is, is written off. And there's certainly a lot of people even at the time wanting to kind of write it off and saying this has been a failed experiment when there was so much evidence to, to the contrary. Um, so, so absolutely, I, I, I would agree with that. Let's have another tune. more like the Hawkwind dying 
I know. Yeah, exactly. So, so suddenly, you know, that's from the, the second album in, in Search of Space. And uh, yeah, exactly. That, what we associate Hawkwind with, this kind of repetitive kind of riff rock with the, 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 the vocals as well that are very important, the way that they would often kind of use, you know, vocals as sounds in themselves rather than, you know, kind of just as words. And it's very difficult to pick those words out, but I, I, I particularly like that clip because it's got Nick Turner in this kind of drugged out drawl talking about people wanting to cut your air and kind of cut, cut your hair, sorry, and not giving you kind of any air, but you're also getting aware. And so <laughs> there is this kind of real hippie mantra in there. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, why use two chords when one will do? Maybe, you know, splash out and do two chords now and again, or even it's it's someone's birthday. Uh, I, lob a third one in, nothing too complicated. They understood the power of that, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and just think how revolutionary that was in the British music scene. You know, you cannot think of any other band that's even doing anything like that because the British music scene in particular was hung up at the time on, on kind of notions of kind of paying your dues and virtuosity and, you know, that you couldn't, you know, even be in a band at that time unless you were a master of your instrument and... You know, all of this kind of stuff. And Hawkwind just completely said, no, we're not interested in that. Um, you know, and famously had non-musicians in the bands. You know, the guys making all the electronic sounds. I mean, they couldn't particularly play anything, but they knew how to kind of make noises out of these various kind of boxes that they'd got. And, and that was, you know, musically speaking, absolutely revolutionary. Do you think they took a deliberate stance against uh, some of that stuff? I mean, early 70s prog, you know, Genesis, yes, and King Crimson. It was all very complicated. You know, it's almost as though to be a rock musician, you had to have been classically trained and really know your stuff, uh, your scales and all that sort of thing. And I mean... Maybe just me, but I mean, a lot of it just seems very boring and sexless and pretentious, really. Did, were they taking a stance against it or were they just just doing their thing? I think they were just doing their thing. and and But, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, in as much as the way that progressive rock very quickly, you know, starts to be perceived as well as, um, you know, this kind of aspirational music form, you know, it's kind of uh, the rock aspiring to the classics and, you know, supposedly appealing to a you know, kind of more of a, I don't know, student or kind of middle-class audience. Whereas Hawkwind aren't just a kind of working-class band. That would be incorrect to say. I think they appealed across all, all spectrum of society. But it's interesting that, that they are definitely, I think, seen as being in opposition to a lot of these groups, despite kind of, you know, they, they, they share certain attributes in as much as they're, they're both into kind of very long songs but whereas in a yes song you you might have like you know 10 different time signature changes and and multi parts of the song something like uh, um uh, what we've just listened to is it's like 15 minutes kind of non-stop of the same thing and i think a lot of you know people at the time or journalists were saying well what what's the point of this a lot of people just didn't even understand what Hawkwind were trying to do. It's like, why would you want to listen to music like this that doesn't change, that is just repetitive and kind of hammers on like that? And of course, now we kind of see it in a completely different context, that kind of music. We we understand where that's coming from. But I think at the time it was it was completely alien to, you know, a lot of the music writers. Yet the people at the grassroots who were, you know, the people going to the shows absolutely got it and absolutely connected to, to what Hawkwind were trying to do. Let's talk about drugs and how that impacted the their, the way they made music and played it and stuff. Obviously, drugs are a big part of the era. 
and I'm assuming big part of Holtwin's life at that time. And you can hear the sort of acid uh, influence even in that track, but it's not the kind of highfalutin, esoteric, uh, cosmological thing that you might get with Yes or some of those other prog bands. It's kind of down and dirty, quite visceral, isn't it? You know, the repetition, trance-like. It's a bit more sort of shamanic or something, uh, street shamanic anyway. I'm assuming that uh, drugs were a big part of what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you speak to kind of Hawkwind and, and they'll kind of happily tell you that for the first, you know, five years of their existence, they were, you know, kind of all their albums were recorded on acid and produced on acid and they were pretty much bombed out most of the time. Though obviously, you know, not so much that they couldn't get it together to actually kind of make the music and, and write the songs. Um, and I, I think that acid, uh, particularly early on, is, is an absolute key part of the of the Hawkwind kind of experience, um, the way that um, they're trying to to mimic in a way that kind of perceptual whoosh that you get with with kind of acid where, you know, kind of just the smallest detail can become fascinating and it's the kind of thing that you're going to want to hang on to and, and dig into. Um, I mean, Hawkwind famously, well, according to Nick Turner anyway, actually gave away a lot of liquid LSD, you know, at these early shows when they were going around the country, you know, to kind of really literally change people's perception of, of, of the music. So, you know... Um, but yeah, they were very much a, a, a kind of uh, an acid and 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 stoner pop band as well. Um, though, of course, when people like Lemmy turn up, there's a, a, an amphetamine kind of angle is introduced as well, um, which which kind of obviously fits in with that kind of repetitive thing. Yeah, and they sort of prefigured uh, the rave generation, didn't they? By that, with this combination of drugs and. You know, trance-like repetitive music, not too many changes, not too uh, too complicated, which allows the audience to get into this kind of deep rhythmic groove. But tell us how they, uh, and then they expand that, don't they, of course, with the light shows and visuals. So tell us how they went from being this band who's playing that kind of music and maybe with Stacey the dancer um, to employing, you know, these full-on visuals and this psychedelic light experience, you know, which must have amplified that that whole immersive 3D trippy, all involving experience of the shows, that also became their trademark. Other people have been doing it. Pink Floyd, of course, have been doing it too. And it was of the time somewhat, but they really kind of explore it. They sort of take it on. They make it part of the whole experience. And that's what impacts the audience quite powerfully, right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, really from the start, Hawkwind were, were very... Um, uh, kind of cognizant of that they uh they used to rehearse with a strobe turned on you know they would actually get a rehearse while the strobe light was playing so you know they just had very basic effects like that at the start but as they become more popular and more people know about them and want to work with them and obviously they make a bit more money they keep on adding to the light show and in 1972, September 1972, they, they've already had a couple of guys uh, who've been working with them on the light show for a while, Primitive Lasers, uh, these guys called Mike Hart and Alan Day. But in September 1972, they're joined by a guy called Jonathan Smeaton, and the three of them together essentially become Liquid Len and the Lens Men. And they put together this light show, which is, you know, kind of something which... Probably only Pink Floyd uh, were the only other comparable band who were trying to do something similar at the time. So they're combining not only lighting, but also kind of slides, putting together um, 
kind of very primitive kind of loops as well. So you're getting actual kind of movement um, happening behind the band. Stuff that, you know, it would seem probably primitive if you saw it today, but at the time, you know, where fans would have just been used to, you know, a couple of crappy follow spots and that's it you know, would have literally been kind of a mind-blowing experience. And as you say, if you're if you're on kind of acid or whatever, you know, it, it just really kind of adds to that whole experience. And also you've got, you know, Stacia dancing during the Space Ritual show. There's another couple of dancers as well. You've got the music kind of like, you know, stopping to allow Bob Calvert to read out these amazing kind of apocalyptic poems in the middle of it. And the whole thing becomes a real multimedia experience. It, it's it's so far distant from what a standard rock gig was at the time. And also, I think you say in the book, um, you talk about the fact that when they had some commercial success with Silver Machine later on, with this you know this one brush with the charts um, and made some cash, you know that they spent quite a bit of it on in, sort of on their light show, right? Yeah, I mean the money was always kind of poured back into the band, and as I said, that was around the time when Liquid Len and the Lensmen came into being simply because they could they could fund it. Um, but uh, yeah, so so absolutely, I mean they were always about kind of how can they make the show you know better. They they they. Uh, there were certainly kind of money wrangles in Hawkwind later on, but certainly earlier on, they very much viewed themselves as a as a communal project. Right. So, but let's move on a bit. Let's have a listen to this. Case of sonic attack on your district. Follow these rules. If you are making love, it is imperative to bring all bodies to orgasm simultaneously. Do not waste time blocking your ears. Do not waste time seeking a soundproof shelter. Try to get as far away from the sonic source as possible. Do not panic. Use your wheels, it is what they are for. Small babies may be placed inside the special cocoons and should be left if possible in shelters. Do not attempt to use your own limbs. If no wheels are available, metal, not organic limbs, should be employed whenever possible. Remember, in the case of sonic attack, survival means every man for himself. Statistically, more people survive if they think only of themselves. Do not attempt to rescue friends, relatives, loved ones. You have only a few seconds to escape. Use those seconds sensibly or you will inevitably die. Do not panic. It's a bit late to say that. Is now, I'm panicking already. Um, extraordinary stuff. It's like sort of J.G. Ballard, Orwell. Um, you know, public information film all mixed in together and quite alarming, I think. Sonic Attack, what's going on there, Joe? So that track, um, this is something we haven't talked about so far, was was written by Michael Moorcock, who you know, is an incredibly important figure in um, the science fiction scene at the time and just happened to kind of live around the corner from them in Labrook Grove. And he um, met up with them um, and um, offered to write for them and that was one of the the first things that he wrote and you're absolutely right it's meant to be like a parody of public service announcements um actually during the second world war but also um you know kind of absolutely fitting into this concept of kind of Hawkwinders purveyors of, of of kind of sonic attack you know not kind of easy listening um and 
so Moorcock actually originally uh, would kind of recite that with the band, but um, by the time they got to Space Ritual, which is where that recording comes from, Robert Calvert had very much made it his own. And as I said, you know, just imagine, you know, you're listening to 10 minutes of, you know, kind of, you know, heavy riffing and electronic sound effects, and then it suddenly stops and you've got this kind of guy kind of haranguing you with these crazy apocalyptic kind of words it, it, it must have been mind-blowing, mind-altering on all kinds of different levels. Well, I mean, you know, if I was an acid, it's the last thing I want to hear. You're just sort of grooving into the light show and some <laughs> hypnotic music and then Calvert appears like some raging preacher from the sort of 25th century haranguing you with that. Um, quite alarming, right? I think so. And, and, and really, I mean, this gets to the heart of the, the whole subtitle of the book, The Radical Escapism uh, in the Age of Paranoia. So Hawkwind, obviously, in a way, I mean, are, are kind of an incredibly escapist band. You know, you went to their shows to, you know, kind of experience, you know, a, a trip in, 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 in music, if you like. But it wasn't just a mellow trip by any means. I mean, it was it was very much also kind of saying this is the world that we're escaping from. You know, this is this is the world of kind of sonic attack of every man for himself, um, you know, really kind of laying bare the whole, you know, kind of ca- capitalist society, uh, straight society at the time. So, and a lot of the lyrics of the songs are, they're about escape, you know, and it might be escaping into space, but there's always this sense of the darkness that they're escaping from. And as I think you said earlier, this is particularly something that, that comes through in the 1970s, you know, when the world seems to be, you know, under threat from, you know, all kinds of, you know, different kind of, dooms and, 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 and glooms, you know, whether it's the oil crisis or the population bomb or ecological breakdown or, or obviously kind of, um, you know, the, the threat of nuclear war. And, and Hawkwind kind of sucked all of this stuff up and kind of spat it out again. Well, Michael Moorcock's fascinating as well, isn't he? I mean, at that time, he was this incredibly prolific author, you know, edited, editing the magazines and uh, churning out these science fantasy books at an amazing rate. Uh, so they got this kind of literary connection with him. And then, of course, Calvert, Robert Calvert, you know, who we talked about, um, who definitely worthy of a programme of his own. Um, he's a poet, really. And you talk about the way that he transformed Hawkwind from this being a space rock band to being a science fiction band. That sounds intriguing. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, in a way, he he really kind of uses them as a, as a canvas for his own imagination. Um of, of which he had an enormous amount. And and you're right, he, he's kind of influenced by uh, a lot of the new wave science fiction uh, that's coming out that, that Michael Moorcock um, is helping to to promote. I mean, you talk about Moorcock as a fantasy writer, and certainly he churned out a lot of fantasy books, but a lot of those were just to fund the magazine that he was the editor of, which was New Worlds. And New Worlds is, is, is absolutely kind of a, a, a turning point in the whole history of science fiction and it's it, it's also where people like J.G. Ballard really get their kind of start from and you know, incredibly influential. And so kind of Calvert is in that tradition as well. But he's also interested in, you know, the kind of golden age utopian sense of science fiction as well. So he's into the whole crazy heroics of science fiction, but also sees science fiction as a vehicle for for satire and subversion. And he brings all of this to Hawkwind um, very quick. I mean... You, you, he, you know, in the album In Search of Space, this is their second album, it comes with this famously with the Hawkwind Log, which is this um, kind of 
booklet full of it's an impossible to describe what it's about but it's 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 full of kind of calvert's um vision of hawkwind as as a band and the way they they hop back and forward through uh time as kind of their saviors of mankind or they're dooming mankind and it's it's written very much in the style of of the time it's it's quite psychedelic but then by the time later on when he becomes their full-time vocalist in the end of 1975 through to to, to 79 his his take on science fiction has become a lot more sophisticated and Hawkwind themselves as a result become a lot more sophisticated uh, in in what they're talking about you said um, it was Calvert's gonzoid intelligence that saved Hawkwind from becoming a psychedelic novelty act and uh, you can clearly detect Calvert's voice in John Lydon Howard DeVoto and Jella Biafra amongst many others and you said you know Lydon was a was it was a died in the wool Hawkwind fan and that's the other thing about Hawkwind, and particularly with uh, Calvert at the head, they were sort of proto-punks, weren't they, as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and again, if we're talking about how different Hawkwind were, uh, I mean, there weren't many kind of bands with a frontman like Calvert, you know, doing the rounds in the 1970s. I mean, in, in many ways, it's not, not hyper... Uh, it, it, it's not kind of over the top to, to say that um, Calvert is, is kind of comparable to Bowie in many ways, you know. Um, he has the same kind of you know intelligence, the same kind of obsessions, uh, and and also you know as you say a, a kind of real punk edge to what he's doing. He's he's always looking to kind of push things. He's not interested in in kind of towing the mainstream line. He he always wants to kind of you know be out there with saying something different. And 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 this was something which was was noted at the time when when punk you know, kind of became a thing that a lot of these figures, and as you say, John Lydon in particular, had been, you know, major Hawkwind fans. Because again, if you wanted to see a band that wasn't prog rock or wasn't a kind of classic rock band in the 70s, you went to see Hawkwind. And and the Hawkwind shows in many ways were real breeding grounds for, you know, a lot of the figures who who then emerged on the punk scene. Uh, I mean, obviously as well, because, you know, they're coming out from a similar place, a lot of them. They're coming from West London. I mean, the Clash is the obvious example. I mean, they're, they're in exactly the same place. Labrook Grove is where Hawkwind are coming from. And Hawkwind were unavoidable. You know, everybody had seen Hawkwind. Everybody had gone to a Hawkwind show. Right. And as we said earlier, they shared quite a lot in common with punks, didn't they? There was a sort of DIY attitude sort of thing going on. Um, you know, not separated from the public from the fans and you know I don't think technical ability uh was a barrier to being in the band when it came to playing music probably didn't get in the way but you know they were anti-bourgeois weren't they they were anti-pretension in some way they might have been patrolling the outer limits of space and science fiction but at the same time they were quite street uh you know they would turn up and play anywhere you know in their vans and um you know that was all quite punk in itself wasn't it I mean, they seem like pirates to me, sort of psychedelic punk pirates. <laughs> I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, but I, I think what needs to be stressed is that I think a lot of writers at the time said, well, Hawkwind sound like this because they don't have the you know, the chops to play any differently. And while Hawkwind weren't virtuoso musicians, they certainly could have played differently if they wanted to. The point is, is that they chose to play like this. You know, they chose to kind of pursue often kind of quite simple riffs, but often doing, you know, quite sophisticated things with them as well. I mean, particularly as they progress through the decade. And certainly when you get figures like Simon House coming on board, who is by anybody's estimation, you know, a keyboard wizard, 
uh, you know, and, and their, their sounds become, you know, kind of incredibly colourful from the mid-70s onwards. But there's that earthiness and the unpretentiousness, um, which is absolutely kind of essential to, to the Hawkwind's ethos. And that is very much, I think, what the punks picked up on. Right. Let's have another tune. Urban Gorilla, quite a difficult track to release these days, I think. Um, is that Lemmy on bass? Yeah, that's absolutely uh, Lemmy on bass there. So, I mean, Urban Gorilla is... Um, so, a Silver Machine in 1972 goes on to become this freakishly kind of large hit all around the, the world and, as you say, ends up funding, you know, the, the Space ritual show that they then put on. And understandably, I think people were saying, well, so, you know, when's the follow-up single coming and they take their time, and then the follow-up single they deliver is a song called Urban Gorilla, which you know starts with the lines, I'm an urban gorilla, I make bombs in my cellar. Um, not the most obvious kind of you know, opening line on, on a song that you're kind of hoping to become another hit single, but that's Hawkwind all over, and it's particularly Robert Calvert all over, because that's his lyric and that's his performance. And even though, you know, it, it, you listen to the the words and you realise it's 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 kind of satirical. It's not meant to be. He's not actually kind of saying that he 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 wants to be an urban gorilla. But the problem is, is that he's so his performance is so passionate. He's so kind of in character that it's very easy to kind of think, my God, here's a band who are advocating kind of you know kind of blowing up um, you know kind of the world. Uh, unfortunately, the release of it coincided with an uh, a, an IRA bombing campaign. And so the, the single was famously kind of withdrawn after three weeks. Um, but it's just another kind of uh, example of kind of what other band would really be releasing a single like that in Britain in 1973. Well, I don't think you'd... Would you be allowed to uh, release it these days? It seems like unlikely, doesn't it? But um, it was certainly very anti-commercial, and that seemed to be part of the, their ethos too, doesn't it? The music does change, you know, from sort of bucolic 60s through the... Various in- incarnations in the seventies, you know, with Moorcock and Calvert, and you know what, what happens next. But they, there is, they stay true to that sort of rather anti-commercial, you know, West London underground vibe. I suppose even when they're not living in West London anymore, they carry on that way. They don't retire to the country in an obvious sort of uh, rock star way. Uh, and then, you know, Calvert's dead. Lemmy goes on to fame and fortune with Motorhead, Nick Turner, and. Dave Brock, two of the main Hawkwind people repeatedly fall out. But then they go into the 80s and 
I guess even though that's not really part of your book, uh, you could talk a little bit about that because they, you know, they maybe they fade from public consciousness more, but they, they're always there. They're always doing their thing right the way through into the 90s. And there's a whole other scenes which they become part of then, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's the, uh, I guess, the, the free festival scene, um, which kind of, you know, comes from the whole, gosh, peace convoy, the, 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 the traveller scene, which I don't know if it's even how much that's remembered these days, but that was a, that was a big big thing at the time you know it was a big worry for mainstream society the idea of these you know this convoy of kind of hippies driving around the country you know trying to stage free festivals here and there and Hawkwind absolutely are a, a, a rallying point for that but then as you move into the the 80s uh sorry the end of the 80s you know um you know outdoor raves are starting to emerge as well and, and this kind of all kind of uh, you know mixes in with with, with the same thing it, it, the, the the traveler convoy scene and the some of the rave scenes starts to kind of converge and you know with bands like I don't know kind of Osric Tentacles and stuff like that these these were kind of big big bands that again were for the most part ignored by the mainstream but they were a lot of people went to see these groups and followed these groups and Hawkwind were absolutely the, in, the inspiration and in you know and by the time we get into the 90s Hawkwind themselves are kind of turning themselves not exactly into a, a techno band but they were certainly integrating a lot of these kind of electronic trancey sounds into in, in, into what they were doing and um you're absolutely right is that Hawkwind certainly in terms of their media profile it kind of waxes and wanes but they're always there and they're always guaranteed of an audience well when right when rave came along um you know with repetitive beats and light shows and uh psychedelic drugs and stuff Hawkwind must have been yeah, well, you know, well done for catching up. We've been we've been at this since the late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there isn't really anybody else like them. I, mean, I was thinking, who can you compare them to for somebody outside the UK who's listening to this who doesn't know? But I suppose the nearest thing I can think of with Hawkwind is to say the Grateful Dead, right? Not because of sound wise particularly, but although they have got some of that, you know, jams going on for Infinity type thing, and you know, led by a kind of in the old days anyway. Uh, you know, a guitarist, um, but something to do with that kind of community of people around them. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people out there still who are who are sort of part of that Hawkwind's world in a some way. You know, and uh, let's and they share that kind of lifestyle. You know, the lifestyle that you you describe as the underground. You know, that's still going on in parts of the UK, and uh, it's a community thing, right? A tribe thing. Maybe tribe tribal is the best way to describe it. I think that. The thing about Hawkwind is that it's very difficult to be a, a casual Hawkwind fan. You're either kind of into them or you aren't. I mean, they, they inspire that kind of level of, of devotion, as you say, a, a kind of communal thing, similar, I guess, to the whole, you know, deadhead community that you have around the Grateful Dead. Um, and while there are, you know, some similarities between Hawkwind and the Grateful Dead, um, there are probably kind of bigger differences. Um I mean, in terms of musical terms, uh, certainly when they started out, people kind of had them tagged as a as a kind of poor man's Pink Floyd. Um, a lot of people noted that there were some similarities to the Velvet Underground, certainly the Velvet Underground of uh, White Light, White Heat. Um, and obviously uh, there was the, the crap rock bands as well, people like Can and Amondul, who they, um, and Noi, who they they were certainly aware of, and there was some cross fertilization there. 
Um, and that was more probably acknowledged in the 1970s than it is today. Um, obviously, crowd rock is very hip and cool still these days, whereas a lot of people will still turn their nose up at the mention of Hawkwind, even though they're musically very much in the same area. Um, so, yes, I mean, they are a unique band, but there are kind of places where they cross over with other bands as well. Well, let's just briefly talk about the band members. Obviously, Brock's always at the centre of it right from the beginning to this day. Um, and you mentioned we talked about Calvert and Moorcock and Nick Turner. and uh, But there has been this, it seemed anyway, this kind of rolling, gigantic cabaret of, of band members coming in and going out the door. Um, have you counted up how many there have been to date? <laughs> I think you certainly must be getting to towards probably a hundred. Um, but what's interesting about Hawkwind? I mean, they're often certainly in the seventies are often accused of somehow always sounding the same. Uh, where I always kind of think, well, there are certain elements of the Hawkwind sound which you know, and, and and most of them are coming from Dave Brock. He has a very particular way of playing the guitar, this kind of choppy, stun riff guitar style, which is instantly identifiable as Hawkwind. And as, if that's in the mix somewhere, you can kind of say, yes, this is Hawkwind. But, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, sounds which have been hung off that, you know, throughout their existence. You know, from the, you know, kind of mid-70s onwards, they start to sound a little kind of proggier, then they get a bit more new wave. And then in the 80s, they're kind of picking up on things like the new wave of British heavy metal. The sound becomes a lot more metallic. Um, they have um, a... Uh, a guitarist called Hugh Lloyd Langdon, who who kind of joins them, who had originally been on the very first Hawkwind album and had had a terrible acid experience at the Isle of Wight and left the band, but then he rejoins them at the end of the seventies and then turns them more into a kind of kind of cosmic metal band, if you like, uh, with his kind of lead guitar. But then he leaves, and as I say, in the nineties, they're then adding kind of the kind of trancey techno sounds to their to their sound, and then. You know, right up until the the, the present day, where they've they've kind of in a way gone back to more of their classic seventies sound. Um, so so yes, I mean they've had a, an enormous amount of characters gone through the band, but there there are always kind of certain elements which which kind of anchor everything. Joe, we we've hardly scratched the surface of the phenomena that is Hawkwind, but of course the book, your book, uh, goes into it in much more depth, and it's a wonderful. Uh, evocation of the era and that whole West London underground scene too. Um, tell us a little bit about the writing of it because it's mainly based on oral testimonies, right? How did it come about? How did you do it? Okay, so the initial idea uh, for the book um, came from a feature that I, I wrote for The Quietus in 2013 where I kind of wrote a big long piece about Space Ritual, which is their favourite uh, uh, famous live album from the 1970s. And that got such a good reaction um, because I was trying to not just talk about the music, but the kind of cultural background to uh, to Hawkwind at the time that I thought, you know, maybe there's, the you know, there's mileage in actually writing a book. As I said, there's been biographies on Hawkwind, but not ones that particularly concentrate on that cultural aspect, and particularly in the 1970s. And so that was the inspiration. And so I started pitching the idea around, uh, I think it was the end of 2015. And I just got incredibly lucky to um, hit um, Mark at Stranger Tractor, who turned out to be a huge Hawkwind fan and, you know, very quickly said, absolutely, yes, let's do this. Um, so I started writing it 
um, in 2016. And initially, I wasn't intending to kind of speak to, you know, every man and his dog about Hawkwind because I'd become um, a bit wary of the fact that often when you, you, you kind of speak to people who've been speaking about a topic for the last 40 or 50 years, they tend to, you know, come back to the same quotes that they've always kind of trotted out. And it's it's sometimes kind of difficult to break through that. But as it was, I, I did end up speaking to a lot of ex-members, a lot of the, the management, a lot of the other people around the band. And there's actually a special edition of the book that's coming out uh, as well as the standard paperback. And the special edition comes with a, uh, a separate volume of these interviews because I wasn't actually able to kind of fit all of these amazing kind of recollections into one book. Um, and so that, that that's kind of there as a separate volume uh, of all of these people as well. Um, but yes, and the, the book was finished probably 2019. So it took about three years to write altogether. And then really it's just been fine-tuned uh, um, for the last year or so. Great stuff. So, Joe, where can people find out more about you and about the book and in its various editions and incarnations, etc.? Okay, well, you can always go to the Strange Attractor website, but the book itself also has uh, its own website, which is daysoftheunderground.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as Joe Banks Writer, so if people want to follow me to, uh, to hear endless Hawkwind trivia, then that would be great. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, listen, why don't we finish with this? Of course, Hawkwind's track, Days of the Underground. Thanks a lot, Joe. In visions of acid, we saw through delusion And brain bombs pollution, we knew we were right the streets were our oyster We smoked urban poison And we turned our noise on We knew how to fight We dropped out and tuned in We spoke secret jargon And we would not bargain for what we had found In the days of the underground We saw that head held up and our anger welled up, but we kept it cool. Our need for machine guns, the system was crumbling, our leaders were fumbling while we broke every rule. We saw them on TV, they lowered their cover, and we tried to smother their voices with sound. In the day. Of the underground Whatever happened to those chromium heroes Are there none of them still left around Since the days of the underground Bob Calvert there singing for Hawkwind on Days of the Underground We should do a programme I think about Bob Calvert He's one of those amazing kind of lost semi-forgotten uh, characters from the counterculture. But in the meantime, you can read more about Calvert in Joe's amazing book, Days of the Underground, available on Strange Attractor Press. We'll be back next time with more tales from the underground, from the counterculture. In the meantime, you can check us out, www.bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>